Such gifts as come from the Valar and through them from the One are to be loved for themselves now and in all nows. They are not given for barter, for more or for better. The Adain remain mortal men, Eldarion, great though they may be. We cannot dwell in the time that is to come, lest we lose our now for a phantom of our own design. Hello! Welcome to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings on Prime, where we look at Tolkien's work through the lens of adaptation with a special focus on Amazon's upcoming big-budget adaptation of the Legendarium. I am joined today by your host, Michael Rowland, a.k.a. Elrond Half-Elven. That's right. Oh, Elrond. That's a good one. I am joined today by Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Dis, the Dwarf Maiden. <laughs> Does she have a beard? That is going to be the eternal question. <laughs> well, if she does, then you need to start growing one. You're, you're woefully short We are here. in quarantine, so actually we're not officially in quarantine, but I missed opportunity. hundred bucks if you can tell me who this is, or Dees. I don't know how to pronounce oh it. Oh my gosh, a hundred, a hundred big ones. I better not screw this one up. <laughs> she is the wife of one of the uh, hill dwarves. I don't know. I don't know. Wait, who are the hill dwarves? I just made them up. There's the hill dwarves, then the towny dwarves, (laughs) and the the big city dwarves. Yeah. (laughs) No, she is the sister of Thorin. Oh, got it. Duh. And mother of Feely and Keely. So we know that you know Thorin and Feely and Keely are Feely and Keely are Thorin's nephews, and so that's she's like the only dwarf woman who's given a name i'm pretty sure the only dwarf woman given a name in the entire legendary yeah the dwarf someone needs to expand upon the dwarf women we need like a whole spinoff with just like dwarf women to make up for lost time maybe that maybe amazon will make that happen it's actually kind of crazy that there are literally no dwarf women except for this lone reference to Dees. like in the entire history of the dwarves they're just not they just don't yeah. exist, basically. Where are they're they? Not, <laughs> they're not players in the plot. It's They're totally in the background. It's really bizarre. It is bizarre. Someone will write a spinoff someday. Well, uh, on today's pod, before we get too sidetracked, uh, we're going to discuss a possible release date for the show, or at least a timeline. We're getting some rough information. And we have some exciting news about one of our main leading ladies. Then our main topic, we're going to continue with our discussion of Aldarian and Arendis, the Mariner's wife from The Unfinished Tales. Now, before we get started, we just want to say if you like what we're doing here and if you want to support us in some way, uh, you can do that by subscribing, rate us, share us with your friends on social media. That really does us uh, a huge solid and helps other Tolkien fans to find us. So I know we say that every week, but it really would mean a lot and it helps us immensely. Well, we have some exciting news this week that Michael and I both got fired up about, and that is that... The Lord of the Rings Amazon Prime show is set to wrap on August 5th. So Fellowship of Fans broke this news. And this is really exciting because, you know, we're, we're calculating, we're estimating here, but we're thinking it could be, you know, anywhere from six to nine months before we get the series. And I know it takes time for them to, you know, do possible reshoots or editing and things like that. But this is a big uh, piece of news and that they're going to be completely done uh, filming and wrap by August 5th. It's coming right up and we could not be more excited. Yeah, I want to know how Fellowship of the Fans got this news because in other breaking news that they've uh, posted about, you know, whether it's casting or something like that, they usually 
cite their source or indicate what their source is, um, whether it's like, you know, a resume that they found that, that had some information on it or whatever. Here, I don't think that they indicated where they got the news. So it really must just be an insider, someone on the inside that is feeding them information, which is that's the first time that I've seen breaking news from Fellowship of the Fans that is just sourced by an insider, which is kind of cool. Um, and indicates it must, I mean, it must be accurate if, if it's an insider source. Yeah, I mean, I know we've seen pictures of people on the ground there, and I don't know if they have intel with someone working officially with the show or if there's just people in New Zealand who talk with extras and castmates. I know they all have to sign an NDA, obviously, but, you know, things right. get out. Word gets out. Things are always leaked, so... Yeah, I hope this is true. I'm I'm assuming at this point it does add up. We know that they've been filming for a long time. Quarantine did, uh, COVID-19 did cause a bit of a pause, but they were able to resume uh, right. shooting earlier than a lot of places because New Zealand had um, was doing very well COVID-19 numbers-wise. So this tracks to me. I would be surprised if if this was uh, this was false information, but. Um, I think we can see we're going to get a trailer very soon. And I think this I think this season is going to come at us in 2021. And that is exciting for multiple reasons. Yeah, I, I agree with that, that, that it will be in 2021 for sure. My guess, I would guess sometime around Christmas, like a, a, a wintertime release. Now, I, I don't really I'm not an expert on um, film production or t- television production. But I'm just guessing that, you know, if August 5th is the total wrap date for for principal photography. And I think that Fellowship of the Fans in their post indicated that the actually principal photography wraps in July, maybe like three weeks prior. And then they scheduled some uh, reshoots and um, a little bit of time for, you know, pickup shots and stuff like that. So August 5th is actually the close of like supposed to be the close of all filming. They could, of course, if they have to redo things, like if after they've been editing for a while, they have to redo it. There's always opportunities to do that later. But August 5th really is the, the wrap date for all the, the shooting, including pickups and, and reshoots. Yeah, it seems like that's when they're all flying on home, in which case, you know, right. you don't want to have right. to fly Everybody's people leaving back to, to redo something. I think they would because we know they're taking time with the show and being really thoughtful and careful. Mm-hmm. But I think that um, it's been a long time coming. And so I, I would bet that they're eager, just as eager to get this thing out. As we are to have yeah. it out. I don't, you know, and I don't know how long it takes after you close principal photography and you wrap all that shooting. How, how long does it take to do the CGI and the it, editing? I mean, I know that's obviously a massive project, but a, a month? Is it several months? I, I think mean, it just depends on the project. There's such a range depending on the project. Um, and they're probably editing as they go, right? I mean, they've finished filming four of the episodes, so they're probably also in post on those episodes. So it's not like they finish shooting in August and then they have to do the post on everything, right? They'll, they'll have some of the early episodes, I would think, fully done or almost fully done. I would done. think so. And, you know, I know that you start the, – the, um, the writers of the show are already definitely working on a subsequent – subsequent seasons and so you know you have to assume that all of this is pretty set in stone at this time this late stage Mm -hmm. and all that's left to do is really the editing and of course promo and things like that it is really encouraging though uh, you know even though we're saying that it, it tracks and it makes sense that they'd be done in august we it wasn't too long ago that we were very afraid that the 
show was going to be significantly delayed. You know, there were reports of um, what was his name? The actor Tom Budge. Tom Budge. Mm-hmm. You know, he left the show because the, they had decided to go in a different direction with his character or maybe cut his character altogether. And so everybody's speculating, oh, wow, they're changing characters or they're making serious changes in the plot. Oh, they're reworking things significantly. Boy, this this is going to cause massive delays now. And so people were speculating. And I kind of assumed, well, we're going to be kicked into 2022. Um, but with an August 5th wrap date, I definitely think um, we'll see something in 2021 you know before the the christmas holiday that's what I that's bet. what i'm betting and folks we have really exciting uh, content coming up on this show given that timeline because we are going to pivot once the show airs that is going to be our focus we're going to talk all about the show um but mm-hmm. before the show airs we still have a lot of exciting content to get to so stay tuned and we'll announce some of that um in the next episode Okay, our next bit of news. Uh, There is a lot of excitement and buzz around one of our leading ladies, Morphe Clark. Uh, As we know, she is playing Galadriel. She's actually um, older, fun fact, random fun fact. She's actually older than when uh, Kate Blanchett played Galadriel. Kate Blanchett was 30 years old and Morphe Clark is 32, which is funny because Morphe Clark looks very, very young. I think 32 is young, but Kate Blanchett just had just was only 30 and she has this very like timeless ethereal she was really only 30 30. when they filmed i know she has a very she looks like an elf like whatever an elf looks like i think you know it's kate planchette she just has a timeless beautiful otherworldly beauty but i digress our girl morphied clark was nominated for a bafta ee rising star award which is Really exciting, and she was nominated for this award based on her performance in Saint Maud, which is a horror film which I have not seen, but I'm definitely going to look it up. Um, but for those who don't know what a BAFTA is, it's basically the British equivalent of the Oscars, it's a bronze award, um, a mask designed by an American sculptor, Mitzi Kunliff. Um, fun fact Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge, has been president of the Academy since February 2010. So, you know, Prince William is, I guess, head of that uh, academy organization. In 2013, the Queen was presented with an honorary award to recognize her outstanding support of the film and television industries. So the royal family is involved, Michael. That's really the take home. (laughs) Is this going to be featured on The Crown in future seasons? Are we team? Because that's the only way way I'm going to be aware of it. Uh, Well... I I wish I could say the same, but I absolutely follow everything that the royal family does always and talk yeah, about are you it. A royal watcher yeah. with my sister. Are you team Are you team Harry and Meghan or are you team William and Kate? What's your Do you have a position on this? I just need to know. I, well, I, 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 okay. I'm not a, a royals watcher, but how can you not be team um, uh, Harry and Meghan. Now, I'm not anti-William and Kate. I don't know if there's some storyline there or some issue or some reason why I shouldn't like them. I don't know anything about them. But um, you got to you gotta like uh, Harry and Meghan and what went on there. And yeah, I... Like you got to be in their corner. I actually... When they when they left the royal family, I I was like appalled, as I think a lot of people were. But after seeing their Oprah special, I got to say, uh, I felt deep sympathy for them. Well, frankly, it almost feels like the show The Crown. I mean, I, I'm sure that this wasn't the case, but it almost feels like it was a coordinated effort. Like The Crown was, 
laying the groundwork for several seasons, like showing the some of the uglier side of the royal family, and and then this bomb drops, and it's like it almost isn't a surprise wasn't a surprise to me. It was like, yeah, I watched The Crown. That's like a weird institution. But but the crown is my only source of uh, well, I think it's a lot of people's, and it is interesting because it does lift the veil on sort of this mysterious, the more mysterious aspects of the monarchy. Which, like as Americans, it's still it's still interesting to us. We're still really fascinated by it, and a, a lot of us are very fascinated by the fact that you know a monarchy is still exists. Um, yeah, a lot of Americans are really obsessed with it. It's 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 definitely like a version of celebrity. I mean. It feels like that's one of the main attractions for, for like why people are into the monarchy. It's just it's it's a, it's a weird celebrity thing. I think it's yeah. I think it's deeply fascinating. I I think that the Queen of England, obviously after after having seen the Crown, I had even more respect for her. I mean, what an amazing, what an amazing woman. But uh, fear not, Harry and Meghan are on good terms with the Queen. That's the latest. Oh, thank God! I mean, oh, now that we've gone through all that, we can go back to our, <laughs> back to our. I can finally rest <laughs> can easy. Finally breathe easy, Michael. Um, well, back to our show. <laughs> I'm really excited uh, that there's buzz ab- about Morphe Clark, and I can't wait to see what she does. I think this is encouraging for a lot of reasons. It's a the the piece she was nominated for is heavy drama, and she's known for that. And I know that we're gonna get a lot of that, a good dose of that in this upcoming series. And the fact that she is now making a name for herself as a dramatic um, actress, one who's kind of a powerhouse, is encouraging, I think, for our for our show, for our Galadriel. And that's exactly who you want to be in the role, is somebody who's, you know, got some chutzpah and some, and some real chops. <laughs> and for somebody who's pretty new, she's you know proving herself in the field so good for her i cannot wait to see what she does we'll have to go back and watch some of some of her work to date because i don't think i've really watched anything she's been in so i don't really have an opinion about her acting chops yet i mean i'm sure she must have some skill if she just won this award but um we should you know go back and take a look at what she's done and like give us a sense of where they're going with the character because you know it's not always the case that a, 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 an actor actress's prior work would dictate the type of characters they'll do in the future especially for a young actor who is earlier in their career but it could i mean you know it, that that's what casting directors are looking at they're looking at your reel they're looking at your your past work and, and they get a feel for what they think you can do so um we should go back and take a look at what she's done and maybe that'll give us some insight into the direction they're taking the Galadriel character. Yeah, I know she was in uh, His Dark Material. She's been in some other things. Um, but she's she's definitely busting out, and I think um, this is going to launch her, you know, to be a household name, quite possibly, if it's successful. And gosh darn it, we're hoping it's successful. She's got a really, honestly, <laughs> I don't envy her because she's got big shoes to fill, you know, with Kate Blanchett doing, Kate Blanchett's not just a great actress. She was really iconic in her depiction of Galadriel. Oh, yeah. I mean, really, of all the actors in the Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, her uh, depiction of Galadriel, of her character, was the most perfect. It just felt the most spot on. Um, it was spot on. That being said, Kate um, Blanchett also didn't have a big role. Galadriel didn't have a big role in the narrative. Her role in the plot is kind of relegated to just 
the portion in um, Lothlorien, but also, of course, the prologue, which is so wonderful. But Keith Blanchett made such an incredible mark on the film by doing the prologue and and in just those scenes i mean everyone thinks of kate blanchett as being really one of the main characters or main actors playing a main character even though her role is relatively small her mark was so significant true that voice that voice she was just the perfect galadriel and I think that I'm glad that she packed a punch because Galadriel in the books has does play a really important role and we're we're quite possibly going to get to see or we will get to see Galadriel's story unfold and see her come into her own, you know, get married, have a child. We could see all of that play out mm-hmm. in this upcoming series. And so it's definitely got to be an actress who's got a lot of range and who's who's going to give us Galadriel's evolution into a powerhouse who rules her own kingdom. She rules her own kingdom. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that, getting her whole character arc. Or maybe they'll um, surprise everyone and continue to make Galadriel more of a smaller bit player. Because it, it, it's not a foregone conclusion that she's going to be a main protagonist in the series. She could be still somewhat on the fringes, uh, you know, present, more present than in the Lord of the Rings, but she doesn't necessarily have to be a main central figure. It could, it could go either way. I, you know, I think they'll probably want to um, highlight her role because Galadriel is a recognizable character, so they want to appeal to fans and do some fan service. Morphe Clark is a famous actress that's getting a lot of buzz, so they wouldn't want to stick her with a, a side character. But, you know... In an ensemble cast like this, there's there's no guarantee that Galadriel is going to be a central figure. She could just be one of many. That's true, but I think it would be a mistake if they didn't make her a central character. I think she's one of the more recognizable female characters in the Legendarium, and sure. we need those narratives to play out <laughs> for the sake of retaining you know, younger female viewers, I think. It's really important, and and it's a great story, is the bottom line. It's a great story. We have a lot of it in the literature. We have a lot of Galadriel, in, so they don't even have to reinvent the wheel here. It's all there. They can just draw straight from the page. Sure. Well, it remains to be seen. And that is all for our news portion. We're going to now continue with our deep dive into Aldarion and Arendis in the Unfinished Tales. Last time we saw our two lovers, we were introduced finally to Arendis. Um, Aldarion and Arendis were reunited after being apart for 14 years, and Aldarion has finally uh, proposed to Arendis. But Arendis is skeptical. So I'm going to read a little uh, excerpt from the book. But Aldarion rude Arendis in earnest, and wherever she went, he would go. He neglected the havens and the shipyards and all the concerns of the guild adventurers, felling no trees but setting himself to their planting only. And he found more contentment in those days than in any others of his life, though he did not know it until he looked back long after when old age was upon him. At length he sought to persuade Arendus to sail with him on the voyage about the island and the ship Iambar, for one hundred years had now passed since Aldarion founded the Guild of Venturers, and feasts were to be held in all the havens of Numenor. To this Arendus consented, concealing her distaste and fear, and they departed from Omena and came to Andunie in the west of the isle. 
There, Volandil, lord of Vendunier, and close kin of Aldarion, held a great feast, and at that feast he drank to Arendis, naming her Uineniel, daughter of Uinen, the new lady of the sea. But Arendis, who sat beside the wife of Volandil, said aloud, Call me by no such name. I am no daughter of Uinen, rather is she my foe. So I love that. Yeah, she's publicly just said she's publicly just declared that the sea is her foe. So that's kind of a big What a what a ballsy move. It is move. a ballsy move. <laughs> like you know, at a table with all the the big wigs and saying that out loud. I, I imagine this being sort of like the the record scratching moment, you know, she said this, she says this and then the record scratches and everyone's like looking at her. It's such an awkward thing to say. <laughs> yeah, it's it's awkward at best um especially because by by now everybody knows that Aldarion you know lives and breathes uh for sea voyaging so this leads us to believe that she most definitely felt like second fiddle during their joint voyage to sea they had a joint voyage to sea um and things are tense we have to assume i mean i commend her right yeah awkward. awkward awkward i commend her for even going you know she begrudgingly I think probably went, but wanted to, you know, prove to him that she was willing to explore this passion of his. Um, but I think it. The more I think about her disdain for the sea, I mean, you know, we just kind of, when you read it, you just kind of accept she doesn't like the sea for whatever reason. But the more I think about that, the more interesting it is because this is a seafaring culture, you know, living on the sea, working on the sea, people do uh, water sports it's just baked into the culture that everyone's all about the sea but she is not into it at all and in fact is seems like afraid of it and I'm just kind of imagining her like being on the sea and like being green in the face and staying away from the from the edge of the ship and you know popping a bunch of drama mean you know it really just me <laughs> sets her apart from her peers in Numenor that she has such not, not only she's not only cool on the sea like she doesn't you know she's just not into it it's not just that she's afraid of it and it seems like it makes her sick um and so it's really kind of interesting and that would be a in an adaptation i think that would visually be very much more obvious than it is in the book yeah that's a good point like there could be reasons other than um that it takes aldarion away from her that she dislikes it so you know, she. We know that Aldarion is distracted by the sea. He leaves for long periods of time, so it clearly precludes them from being together. And I always imagine that was probably the source of her disdain. That and the fact that you know she loves forests, she loves trees, and he's chopping down all the trees to build his ships. But you're right in that there could be other reasons for her distaste. Um, there could be multiple reasons. Yeah, I, I think it is. I'd have to go back and find that reference. But I mean, I think that in the description of her just right at the beginning when we're first introduced to her before they even have a relationship i think that we learn that she doesn't care about the sea and she doesn't like it um, so it really is a part of her character from the outset it's not just that she resents the sea because of aldarion it's that she doesn't like the sea and that's why she never wants to, she doesn't want to go with him she doesn't want to join in his works or um, it's not a passion she can share because um, otherwise i think if she didn't dislike it i mean why wouldn't she want to share in it Right. I mean, she could be, it could, in the series, if this were a series or a movie, they could really go into Arendis's perspective even more and, you know, 
really depict that she's imagining a life on land with children and with her husband and ruling the kingdom together. Um, And she's fearful. It says in here that she, you know, it says concealing her distaste and fear. She's fearful. What is she fearful of? You know, is she fearful of a life at sea where he'd always be looking to new lands? You know, a life at sea is not exactly cushy. So that could be part of it as well is that it would snatch her future from her even if it meant a life with him it would be not the life she envisioned um she'd always have to join him on these expeditions so you know it's it's clear that um when they get back she is wary of becoming patrolled to him still so once they get back um from this voyage Aldarion devotes himself once again to his harbors and the building of the great sea walls. So he's back at it. He's, you know, back to his passion. Um, after he completes many projects around the island, Aldarion again goes to Arendis and he's proposing marriage, but she is still hesitant. We've got some great dialogue here between Arendis and Aldarion, and anytime that happens in a chunk, we're going to just read it back and forth, um, and I will play the part of Arendis, and Michael will be playing Aldarion. <laughs> or we could swap. I, I wanted At to some be Arendis, could... but you vetoed me. <laughs> we could totally gender swap some section, <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be Aldarion. Uh, but yeah, so that's what we're going to do moving forward. I have journeyed with you by ship, Lord. Before I give you my answer, will you not journey with me ashore to the places that I love? You know too little of this land for one who shall be its king. Therefore they departed together and came to Amerie, where were rolling downs of grass, and it was the chief place of sheep pasturage in Numenor. And they saw the white houses of the farmers and shepherds, and heard the bleeding of the flocks. Here could I be at ease. You shall dwell where you will, as wife of the king's heir, and as queen in many fair houses, such as you desire. When you are king, I shall be old. Where will the king's heir dwell meanwhile? With his wife, when his labors allow, if she cannot share in them. I will not share my husband with the lady Uinen. <laughs> that is a twisted saying. As well might I say that I would not share my wife with the lord Arome of forests, just because she loves the trees that grow wild. Indeed you would not, for you would fell any wood as a gift to Uinen if you had a mind. Name any tree that you love, and it shall stand till it dies. I love all that grow in this isle. Then they rode a great while in silence, and after that day they parted, and Arendis returned to her father's house. To him she said nothing, but to her mother, Nunith, she told the words that had passed between herself and Aldarion. Holler nothing, Arendis, said Nunith. So you were as a child, but you love this man, and he is a great man, not to speak of his rank, and you will not cast out your love from your heart so easily, not without great hurt to yourself. A woman must share her husband's love with his work and the fire of his spirit, or make him a thing not lovable. But I doubt that you will ever understand such counsel. Yeah, so that's a really crucial line, all or nothing horrendous. Um... And, you know, she's cautioning her, like she's cautioning her that if she doesn't embrace his, his love, he'll, she'll make him a thing not lovable. And you can say that for, you know, a woman or a man, if you, at some point you can't squash that fire that's in them, or you will, you will make them something that they are not. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I think 
yeah, her mom is saying all or nothing is a, is a mistake. And that pertains to both of them. They're both, I will have it all or I will have nothing. You know, it's right. Aldarian goes to sea and I'm going to go and see all that I care to and be gone for years, sometimes 14 years. Right. And come back when I please. And she's, I will have all of him and none of the sea or none of him. And so that that all or nothing is is like their fatal flaw. And we really see the the wisdom of a mother here. I mean, Nuneth knows her daughter and and knows the e- extreme nature of her views, you know, her stubbornness, I guess, and uh, tells her, I, you know, I know this this is how you've always been, and I doubt you're going to listen to me now, but uh, this is not a recipe for success in a relationship. You can't be all or nothing, and you can't try and fight with your partner's uh, passions. It's just not going to work. And I, you know, there's some wisdom in that. Right. And I mean, in the earlier passage when we when we that we read, you can see that Eldarion is clearly really going after her hard. You know, he's saying, you know, name any tree that you love and it shall stand until it dies. He's declaring himself at this point. And he, I think, is trying to make up for lost time. But, you know, she's right to be hesitant and that he hasn't really proved himself. You know, one diamond ain't gonna do it. He's trying, but she's really, uh, she's skeptical. But he's he's still, he's wooing her, as it says, in earnest. So we'll see if he can be a man of his word. So continuing on, I'm going to read the next passage. Now Almarion the queen, being acquainted by Nuneth with what had passed, and fearing lest Aldarion should seek solace in voyaging again, for he had been long ashore, sent word to Arendus asking that she return to Armenelos. And Arendus, being urged by Nuneth and by her own heart, did as she was bid. There she was reconciled to Aldarion, and in the spring of that year, when the time of the Urukirme was come, they ascended the retinue of the king to the summit of the Meneltarma, which was the hollowed mountain of the Numenorians. When all had gone down again, Aldarion and Arendus remained behind, and they looked out, seeing all the isle of the westerness laid green beneath them in the spring, and they saw the glimmer of light in the west, where far away was Avalone, and the shadows in the east upon the great sea, and the meadow was blue above them. They did not speak, for no one save only the king spoke upon the height of the Meneltarma, but as they came down, Erendis stood a moment, looking towards Amerie and beyond, towards the woods of her home. Do you not love the Yozayan? I love it indeed, though I think that you doubt it. For I think also of what it may be in time to come, and the hope and splendor of its people, and I believe that a gift should not lie idle in hoard. Such gifts as come from the Valar, and through them from the One, are to be loved for themselves now in all nows, they are not given for barter, for more, or for better. The Idain remain mortal men, Aldarion, great though they may be, and we cannot dwell in the time that is to come, lest we lose our now for a phantom of our own design. Then, taking suddenly the jewel from her throat, she asked him, Would you have me trade this to buy me other goods that I desire? No, but you do not lock it in a hoard. Yet I think you sell it too high, for it is deemed by the light of your eyes. Then he kissed her on the eyes, and in that moment she put aside fear and accepted him, and their troth was plighted upon the steep path of the Meneltarma. That is a very romantic scene. Romantic, but still fraught with 
the same conflict. Yeah, they're just going over and over again. But I love that she's calling him, you know, live in the now. Like she's really calling him out to be present. Like why with the illustration with her jewel, you know, Mm -hmm. saying lest we lose our now. We cannot dwell in the time that is to come lest we lose our now for a phantom of our own design. Those are really powerful words and really a caution to him to see what he has now right in front of him instead of going looking for for something else and i i feel always conflicted when i read this passage because in a way i mean i i think that tolkien intends arendus's message to to be basically the the message that the story is trying to convey or at least in, in this scene like she's right and he's wrong in, in this story i think that that is the intent of tolkien but at the same time i sympathize with um aldarion's tendency to to plan and want to make things better i mean isn't that the job of a king you you want to plan and make things better for your people you know ambition i know is often depicted as a negative trait but i think it's also inherently human and it doesn't have to be negative you know ambition when um, harnessed for good purposes is not a bad thing and you know her retort that just live in the now and don't worry about the future that kind of rubs me the wrong way that doesn't really jive with how I approach my own life so I, I don't know I I read this in a I have conflicting emotions because I think I'm supposed to read it in one way but it actually strikes me in the opposite way which maybe that's the mark of a good book is that it really makes you ask questions and uh, puts you in conflict with yourself and yeah and you can see his conflict in that he lives and breathes for this endeavor of going and and exploring other places but he's reckless about it i think is where my big criticism comes in that he doesn't take into account that he has a lot of learning to do before he becomes a king he is destined to become a king he's not free to do as he pleases in this life and that is one of his great struggles but he it seems that he does very little you know to to do his duty i i also sympathize in that it's clear that he has this passion but i also do think that as the story plays out he gives himself entirely to that passion and trying instead of trying to strike the balance and that's my big criticism right well i i think this scene is visually going to be one of the most amazing and beautiful scenes that we would see in the show if indeed they adapt this story because um, it takes place in the middle tarma which we get a good description um and i won't go over it again because we didn't done it in the past episode we get a, get a good description of the middle tarma and that um ceremony and uh you know at the head of the middle tarma nobody speaks but the king it is it's dead silent even the animals don't speak so it is it's true silence sacred um, yeah it, exactly it's sacred and it is the closest thing we get to a, a religious ceremony in all the legendarium because it you know it's it, you know it's eru kirme so i mean obviously eru which is the name of god basically in this universe is a part of that word um and so it's the time of eru, eru kirme i hope i'm saying that right but um you know they're celebrating eru um on this sacred mountain and the only animals that go there are the eagles of manway uh, who are kind of watchers and um, protectors of that area. They're, they're the only animals that um, tread in that sacred place. And they're standing there in the middle Tarma, 
following the ceremony and looking out over basically all the land, um, all of Numenor, looking out over the Great Sea. They see the light in the west. They see the shadows in the east upon the Great Sea. You know, they see the entire world. It's all laid out before them. And while looking at the entire world on the sacred day, this is the time when they really come together and their their path is charted, their course is charted together. And, and they really, she finally gives in um, to her love for him. And that's, you know, it's a beautiful moment at a beautiful time at a beautiful place in Numenor. So I think that would be a really great scene when, if and when we see it. Yeah, oh, it would be gorgeous. And I love the romantic language here, the yet I think you set it too high for it is dimmed by the light of your eyes, you know, that it really finally wins her. That's the winning line. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's, good it's one. It's classic. You got nice eyes. You got nice eyes. Um, and also, you know, you're referencing religion. She says such gifts as come from the Valar and through them from the one. Is she referring to mm-hmm. Eru Iluvatar there? Uh, the oh, god? Yeah. Oh, so yeah. we have to assume, I mean, that is religion. So it is an interesting look at um, the acknowledgement there of the one god is also interesting in that it's that explicit. Yeah, so this is their critical moment where finally the timing seems to be right and they really connect. Um, so I'm going to, Michael's going to continue uh, reading from there on. They went back then to Armenelos, and Aldarion presented Arendus to Taraman Elder as the betrothed of the king's heir. And the king was rejoiced, and there was merrymaking in the city and in all the isle. As betrothal gift, Menelder gave to Arendus a fair portion of land in Emerie, and there he had built for her a white house. But Aldarion said to her, Other jewels I have and hoard, gifts of kings and far lands to whom the ships of Numenor have brought aid. I have gems as green as the light of the sun and the leaves of trees which you love. No, said Arendus, I have had my betrothal gift, though it came beforehand. It is the only jewel that I have or would have, and I will set it yet higher. Then he saw that she had caused the white gem to be set as a star in a silver fillet, and at her asking he bound it on her forehead. She wore it so for many years until sorrow befell, and thus she was known far and wide as Tar Elisterne, the Lady of the Starbrow. Thus there was for a time peace and joy in Armenelos, in the house of the king, and in all the isle, and it is recorded in ancient books that there was great fruitfulness in the golden summer of that year, which was the 800 and 58th of the second age. But alone among the people, the mariners of the Guild of Venturers were not well content. For fifteen years Eldarion had remained in Numenor and led no expedition abroad, and though there were gallant captains who had been trained by him, without the wealth and authority of the king's son, their voyages were fewer and more brief, and went but seldom further than the land of Gilgalad. Moreover, timber was become scarce in the shipyards, for Eldarion neglected the forests, and the venturers besought him to turn again to this work. At their prayer, Aldarion did so, and at first Arendus would go about with him in the woods, but she was saddened by the sight of trees felled in their prime, and afterwards hewn and sown. Soon, therefore, Aldarion went alone, and they were less in company. Well, it's clear that her future father-in-law is crazy about her. Like, she's got the in-laws on lock. Like, he builds, you know, commands that you know, a palace be built for her, gives her a large swath of land. So she definitely has the in-laws as allies. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I love that we get also the reference, again, 
stars are such a theme, lights and stars all throughout his legendarium. So we get this white gem to be set as a star, you know, on her forehead. And that is so Tolkien to have those representative, you know, lady of the star brow. Well, there are, there are multiple instances in the legendarium where characters put gems of some kind on their brow. I mean, Arendil the Mariner, right? The Silmaril on his brow. I think mm-hmm. Aragorn in Lord of the Rings, at some point there's a gem or something on, on his brow as part, I think like when he's crowned king or something like that. I'll have to go look it up, but there's a time I think, I think when right. Aragorn's we'll wearing something on his brow. It's, I guess it's like a really common fashion thing in, <laughs> in Middle Earth and in Numenor. All the rage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a, a great passage, but you already see uh, little cracks, right, in the foundation. In that, you know, the guild adventurers, the frat boys, they're like, oh, they're bummed <laughs> out. They're they're wandering around like leaderless. They're like, where's our guy? Yeah, there's like one of them's got some beer another one's got some ping pong balls and they're just like what do we do with these what are without we supposed our leader? to do with ourselves there was once a game <laughs> that we played but now i don't remember how without Raldarion. yeah i can just see them like giving him guff for like what what bro like you're too good for us now and he's you know he's distracted and soon they're walking through the woods and Arendis is She's saddened, it says, by the sight of trees felled in their prime. And so this is also driving a wedge, the fact that, you know, he is neglecting his duties of replanting and and tending these forests, and she's really irked by that. Do you think there's any parallel here between... There's multiple references throughout the Legendarium, but I'm specifically thinking in Lord of the Rings with Saruman felling trees in Fangorn Forest for his own purposes... Do you think there's any parallel here? You know, Aldarion cutting down the trees to build ships and Arendis, you know, is obviously very saddened by that. Is there any parallel to the to the Ents um, who, who love the trees versus, you know, Saruman or, or any of the similar characters who destroy nature in pursuit of uh, machines and industry? Oh, definitely. I think definitely. That's such a big thing. Uh throughout Tolkien's literature that I think that being a bad steward of the earth was something that he really being a good steward of the earth rather is something that he cared really deeply about and so I think that you can read the story and say that Aldarion is the focus but I think Arendis's perspective as you mentioned before the emphasis is very much on Arendis's perspective being in my opinion, the quote-unquote right one, and that, like, he is not being a good steward and replanting the forest, which is his job, and he's, you know, building ships and doing... You know, we don't want this to become an Easter Island situation. Like, this is an <laughs> island. Well, but Resources you know what's interesting are limited. Is, you better steward them well. <laughs> what's interesting is when he is focused on his work, he actually does tend the forests well because no, no one was tending the forest. No one was replanting... Uh, no one was, you know, fostering groves of trees for the purpose of uh, of replenishing the timber. And so he that was actually a contribution he made. He was maintaining that really well when he focused on his work and is actually horrendous who would pull him away from that work. So it, it's kind of interesting because, I mean, yes, he would chop down trees to build ships, but he was also replanting and growing the trees 
um, to keep the ecosystem healthy. It seems like Arendis just doesn't want trees to be chopped down ever, um, which may, I guess in the Tolkien universe, maybe that's the right thing. I think in the real world, it's, <laughs> it, it, you know, it's, you have to <laughs> you have to clear out the brush. That's part of keeping a forest healthy, right? Otherwise, you have big forest fires. So, um, I think it's all metaphorical. I think it's literally, literally all metaphorical for like their passions. The essence of who each other is is they're not compatible. They're not. They grade on each other's passions. If right. that makes sense, they have this fundamental oil and water element that they just don't they can never be happy together because they're wounding each other essentially i think it's just metaphorical that they are wounding each other in that they're in direct conflict with what with what each other's wants and needs constantly right yeah she she sees him felling trees and and sawing the trees in half in order to build ships and it hurts her. You know, it says she's saddened by the sight of that. I could, I can almost see her kind of like wincing. You know, every time a lumberjack chops at the the tree trunk, she's like, oh, you know, ah, oh, and she hates it. You know, it, it almost it's like it's. And how many parallels? To her. Yeah, how many parallels do we see? We we see this play out all the time in couples. You know, who, especially partnerships, when you've got different end goals or you've got you know, these things that, that grade on each other or wear each other down. Um, there can be love in the relationship, but love and, and happiness and compatibility are not the same thing as Aldarian and Arendis can attest to. <laughs> right, right. And it, this isn't, this clearly is not a situation where they're yin and yang, where they are different, but their differences complement each other. This is a situation where their differences are diametrically opposed to each other and indirect conflict you know their interests and their passions and their loves are not at all compatible um and so they're they're not filling each other's uh, gaps or holes they're not fin- completing each other's sentences they're talking over each other that, that's the version of the relationship that they have continuing on in the narrative now the year came in in which all looked for the marriage of the king's heir, for it was not the custom that betrothal should last much longer than three years. One morning in that spring, Aldarion rode up from the haven of Andonier to take the road to the house of Beregar, for there he was to be guest, and thither Arendis had preceded him, going from Armenelos by the roads of the land. As he came to the top of the great bluff that stood out from the land and sheltered the haven from the north, he turned and looked back over the sea. A west wind was blowing as often at that season, beloved by those who had a mind to sail to Middle-earth, and white-crested waved marched toward the shore. Then suddenly the sing-longing took him as though a great hand had been laid on his throat, and his heart hammered, and his breath was stopped. He strove for the mastery, and at length turned his back and continued on his journey, and by design he took his way through the wood where he had seen Arendis riding as one of the Eldar, now fifteen years gone. Almost he looked to see her so once more, but she was not there, and desire to see her face again hastened him, so that he came to Beregar's house before evening. There she welcomed him gladly, and he was merry, but he said nothing touching their wedding, though all had thought that this was the part of his errand to the Westlands. As the days passed, Arendis marked that he now often fell silent in company when others were gay, and if she looked towards him suddenly, she saw his eyes upon her. Then her heart was shaken, 
For the blue eyes of Aldarion seemed to her now grey and cold, yet she perceived as it were a hunger in his gaze. That look she had seen too often before, and feared what it boded, but she said nothing. At that Nuneth, who marked all that passed, was glad, for words may open wounds, as she said. Ere long Aldarion and Arendus rode away, returning to Armenelos, and as they drew further from the sea he grew merrier again. Still he said nothing to her of his trouble, for indeed he was at war with himself and irresolute. This description of the passion sort of setting upon him again is just so, I mean, it grips me. I mean, it's, it's, visceral. it's physical. Yeah, visceral. That's, that's a good word for it. A great hand had been laid on his throat. His heart hammered. His breath was stopped. I mean, that's like, can you imagine feeling that way all of a sudden because of something you know, emotional, not, you know, not a physical force, but it has a physical effect on you. I mean, you really feel it and it really uh, is an effective way of explaining how powerful this uh, feeling is to him. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's definitely a powerful um, drive that he has. And it's interesting that the further he is away from the sea, he can be distracted for a time. It seems like proximity is playing a role as well. Um, but, you know, Erendis, she can see it. She can see that he's, you know, silent and kind of sullen and saddened. And this is, you know, disturbs her. And she can see, you know, his hunger and longing. But she doesn't, it's interesting that she doesn't speak to him about this. Like, it says very specifically that she said nothing and that i think is also one of their (laughs) big relationship (laughs) errors is that they're just not talking about it communication is not their forte yeah and um and i love that her mother gives the opposite advice like words may open wounds like don't like stuff it down he'll forget about it which i think is such a huge mistake Mm mm-hmm Although I think I I think in this one instance, so in general, you're, I think you're totally right. I mean, their failure to communicate, they they keep their feelings inside. That's a problem. But I think in this one instance, what he is going through, it is he is at war with himself. You know, it says, and she, I think she can see he's like going through something, and it's like one of those things where it, she's not not bringing it up because she's trying to sweep it under the rug or whatever, but she doesn't. He's too um, vulnerable right now. It, I think she can see that it would be harmful to bring it up. It would be like he's all frayed ends right now and, and trying to, I don't know, pick a fight with him or or force him to verbalize what he's going through. It would be too soon. So I think th- this is the one instance where she doesn't communicate, but I think it's probably right not to. to kind of She can see he's working through something and she's letting him work through it. I think she would be well within her rights to have a conversation because at this point, you know, she he did propose to her and now it's been a few years and it says, you know, by the custom of the people, like an engagement shouldn't be this long. So she's now facing public scrutiny at his unwillingness to kind of set a date and get his head in this marriage. And so she's sort of I, I feel like she's walking a tightrope, you right. know, trying to navigate his moods. So, again, I, I just really sympathize with her in this. Yeah, that's fair. That's a fair point. Everything is going good, and then all of a sudden he comes in like a dark storm cloud, and something's gone wrong, and it's like 
dude, nothing, nothing has changed. What's bothering you? You know, why all of a sudden have you gone off the deep end? So I, I, right. Yeah, I get that. Well, it's clear that he's sort of, Eldarion is in limbo. He's very unhappy. You know, he's unhappy on land, but aware that at this point, his seafaring is going to cost him something. It's going to cost him time away from Arendis, which in a previous passage, he looks back on all that time venturing and he sees the emptiness of his days. He sees that he doesn't have, you know, anything really to show for it. So he's 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 torn. And there's an element of tragedy here because the way this is described, I mean, he was happy. Everything was going well. He was perfectly happy with, with being with Arendis and with his life. But then it's like this thunderbolt hits him and he can't help it. It is it is described as an outside force that's coming upon him. So you feel kind of it's tragic in nature. You do feel bad for him because it's not a character flaw that he is going that results in him going through this. It's like something that he can't help that it's overcome him. Not not to say that he does not have character flaws or he doesn't there aren't problems with the way he deals with it, but I think we're supposed to recognize that this is something that he can't help the way he feels. And when you feel this way, it's going to cause these problems. So it, it sets it up as a more tragic conflict more than just like, well, you know, Eldarion needs to get over it. Like, I think, I don't think you can say that because it is described as being such a powerful dominating force over him. Yeah. It's a destiny. You could almost see it as his destiny. He's being prohibited from fulfilling the thing that he, believes he was put on this earth to do and in that way it is a it's a it's a terrible situation that he's facing he's at war with himself that's that's an apt description so i thought there was an interesting parallel here where it describes you know he has this moment where he's struck with the longing for the sea and he has to tear himself away he you know he struggles for the mastery um over himself and he forces it's like he has to force his body to turn away from the sea and he actually you know rushes towards Arendis he's because he's trying to overcome whatever it is it's that's fighting for his heart you know he's fighting with himself it's it feels like an external force but it really is he's fighting with himself so he, he rushes to Arendis that whole description it reminds me of when Bilbo gave up the ring after the party uh, and the struggle he has to he has to go through to give up the ring, which is a really monumental moment in the Lord of the Rings. Um, and he intends to leave it to, to Frodo. He doesn't consciously think it should be a big deal, but he he struggles to do it. Um, and it is an incredible struggle of wills for him to finally leave it behind. Um, you know, and he has to struggle for the mastery as well. So I really, I felt a parallel there in, in terms of the, the fight that Aldarion is having with himself. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's like a a powerful force that, and it's a decision. It's it's clearly a a, a decision that he's going to have to make, and he just can't do it. He can't tear himself away, and even when he does, he's unhappy. He's listless. He's sullen. Right, and unlike Bilbo, who does successfully leave the ring behind and feel relieved and go to Rivendell, Aldarion, although he masters himself for a moment he ultimately succumbs and he i mean spoiler alert this gets in the next section but you know he's not going to stay uh with horrendous he's going to go out to sea again so unlike bilbo he did not win that fight he was unsuccessful i think this is the perfect modern love story um 
because now that women are in the workforce and have been for many years, we've seen this play out of we can you can use careers as an illustration, but you know, can you have a successful marriage and two people who have successful passions and careers and lives independent of one another? I mean, yes, you can, but we've also seen the opposite happen where one person's ambitions or goals professionally conflict with another with their spouses um, and it doesn't work out in the end. So I think we're really ready for this love story like now in that it's not picture perfect. It's really a struggle the entire time and there's l- real love there and um, intimacy but uh, as you said before Michael their interests are diametrically opposed and so yeah, to me, it's like a very modern love story. I, I, uh, I'm enjoying reading it and watching it play out. I don't know if I should say enjoying, but um, I find it fascinating and interesting. And it's it's also a, kind of a refreshing um, redefining of the you know it's not a fairy tale. It's it's redefining that fairy tale right uh, kind right. of story. And we talked about the Ents briefly a minute ago, and that made me think of a another parallel. Aldarion and Arendis, their relationship and what they, the differences that they struggle to overcome and ultimately fail to overcome, feels very reminiscent of the Ents and the Entwives, um, who mm. ultimately are sundered because their purposes on Earth were different and ultimately couldn't jive. The, the Ents were the shepherds of the forest, so they tended the trees but sort of let them grow wild, whereas the Entwives, we know, they're more about cultivation, you know, crops and growing plants and ordering the, the the growth of plants to a certain design, whereas the ants weren't about designing the forest. They just sort of let them grow freely and protected them. And um, th- they had such different interests that the ant wives ultimately, they go to a completely different area of the world to, to grow their crops and do their thing. Ding, 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 ding. I think we have a theme here. Yeah, Tolkien loved these themes. <laughs> and, and I mean, I think we frequently. have a theme with, with um, you know, love that is impossible love or something like that, mm-hmm. you know. And it's uh, not that the Ents and the Entwives didn't, didn't love each other. They loved each other. I mean, the Ents the missed the Entwives, so they went to go looking for them. But, you know, due to tragic circumstances, um, you know, war or whatever, they couldn't find them. And maybe the Entwives were all dead or fled to distant lands, but they could never be rejoined. Um, and so it's, it's really tragic. And I think we are kind of starting to see a similar thing play out here. Yeah, I, 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 that is such an interesting parallel. And thematically, I've always thought this is so completely different from a lot of his other works. But you're, I, now I'm seeing through our discussion that it is a very Tolkien work and there are that it's actually got a lot of overlap with other stories. I think we're going to stop now, wrap up our discussion. Um, but we, we're going to finish this book, uh, in the next few episodes. So we hope you're enjoying this deep dive into Aldarion and Narendis. We certainly are this tortured love story. It's uh, one for the ages for sure. Yeah, and one that the more that we read and talk about it, the more I want to see it in the show. Um, so I'm really keeping my fingers crossed. And I 
I'm I'm on the fence actually about whether I want to see it in this show or whether I think it deserves its own spinoff. Real quick, I mean, maybe we should save this for a longer discussion. But do you have a thought? I mean, do you have a preference? Uh, I think it should be its own spinoff for sure. Mm-hmm. There's so much here, and you could you could play with, you know, what what was Arendis doing while he's at sea? You know, that could be a whole entire episode. There's just so much material here and amazing dialogue. I mean, we read some of that dialogue today, but it I think it absolutely deserves its own spinoff, and I would love to see that. Yeah, I wouldn't be uh, terribly disappointed or anything if it wasn't its own spinoff. We talked about the ways in which it could be a good intro into the world. Aldarion could be our sort of guide in in terms of introducing us to the major characters. It could definitely fit, but I think what we would lose if it was just a part of this larger series is the show would not be about their relationship. That would be a subplot. It would be a side plot. They wouldn't be able to focus on their love story. And um, when you have a big epic tale like the the show is probably going to be, um, it's going to be about a lot of different things and the love story is going to not get the focus it deserves because this story is about the relationship. And if you're telling a love story, it, it needs to be about that love story. Uh, and if you just try and shoehorn it in there, you're going to end up with not a love story and it's not a lot of the stuff isn't going to make sense and it's not going to serve whatever greater plot the show really is focused on so i i think that if you want to tell this love story right it would have to be its own spinoff yeah i i absolutely agree and i think you know in the other adaptations in the lord of the Rings series for example the love stories were very much pushed to the side granted they're not the focus of the lord of mm-hmm. the rings the love stories are not the focus but they are there they are present but in the movie adaptations for example faramir and eowyn we only get a glimpse of it in the houses of healing and that's in the that's in the version that didn't even make the full length movie it's in yeah, the, the theatrical cut it's completely cut from the theatrical it's version completely cut from the theatrical version it's only in the extended version and it's actually quite well done in the extended version i enjoy it but um yeah none of the adaptations have really focused on any aspect of the romance just a little bit just a bit here and there so i think it'd be so great if we got a true love story i'll be uh uh you know one as as difficult as this one um but i hope yeah i hope to see it in its own series fingers crossed well i think that'll do it for today um Again, if you want to support us, please do like us, subscribe, share us on social media. Uh, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I will beat it until you share us on social media. So, <laughs> <laughs> nay. Oh God. <laughs> uh, but we're going to continue this uh, discussion into Eldarian and Arendus next week. We'll have plenty more news for you, and we're getting we're getting close to uh, wrapping this story up. And we have a lot of other great content that we want to work on. Um, we're going to be looking at the other other films, other adaptations. Um, so there's a lot that we want to get to in the next six or so months before the show actually launches. So we're really excited about the future. Well, farewell, my friends. May the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. Until next time. Jen, what do you have for us for the Grey Havens? Well, I was looking around the internet 
this week and I stumbled on a glorious little gem. So there is actually a Soviet era Lord of the Rings adaptation that was discovered very recently. And I'm going to read directly from a New York Times article. A Soviet Lord of the Rings is unearthed epic in its own way. Tolkien fans received an unexpected gift with the rediscovery of an all-but-forgotten 1991 production. They were also left with questions like, why is Gollum wearing a lettuce on his head? <laughs> so it turns out that this this creation of Lord of the Rings was, was created during, uh, it was on a Russian television show in 1991, and um, the Soviet Union, when the Soviet Union ended, uh, it was it, the production just vanished. It was vanished into the archives, um, but it was recently found and digitized, and it's supposedly supposed to be really entertaining. It was really low budget, and the costumes were shoddy. But people have said it's actually so bad that it's good. Like it's worth watching because they preserve all of the all of the major plot points and they're actually really creative. Like there weren't very many resources for under Soviet Russia for making this adaptation, but they got so creative with costumes that I guess they incorporated lettuce. Um, I have not seen this, but I'm dying to see it. Uh, one quote from the article, I unironically love it, said Maria Alberto, a fan studies scholar at the University of Utah. People who say, oh, it's really bad. It's really cringy. She said, had grown used to decades worth of polished adaptations. But she said the production reminded her of fan-made adaptations of other Tolkien works, which an audience can watch the process of the adaptation unfold in chaotic detail. Um, and I just, I love this because to me, it, it reminds me that this story transcends cultures it transcends time periods. It truly is beloved all over the world. And you can, it's accessible. You can make Tolkien anytime, any way with a little bit of creativity and lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> creativity and lettuce. And the gar I love how The Guardian describes it. it. It describes it as the sort of LSD freak out you saw on after school public information films in the 1980s, which is just oh hilarious. Oh my gosh. <laughs> But the article yeah. is really interesting because it describes um, – so th this film came out on, t on Russian TV in 1991, so that's two years after the Berlin Wall fell. But it talks about how before that, um, Tolkien was actually banned because it had sort of pro-West themes. Uh, now I think the <laughs> – the Russian government didn't really understand what Tolkien was about because Tolkien wasn't allegorically talking about the superiority of the literal West in our world. But um, because no. of the pro-West themes that on the surface appear to be present, they basically banned the work. So people who wanted to read Tolkien, it was it was like an underground bootleg, you know, illegal get it from your friend around the corner type of endeavor. And I love imagining a world where, you know, you're trying desperately to access Tolkien and stories about elves. And that's sort of your uh, counterculture, uh, rebellious, revolutionary um, fight. And that's the form that it takes is, is reading Tolkien. I kind of love that idea. All you need for art to thrive is to ban it. You know, it's ban that's something <laughs> and you can, you're for sure going to get it in the, you know, the black market of the, the film world right, or something. Right. 
Um, yeah, that's so interesting. I didn't realize it had been banned. But I, I'm dying to see this because they actually feature some of the characters that nobody will tackle. Nobody wants to touch with a 10-foot pole like Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil is in this adaptation. We never get Tom Bombadil anywhere because people just, I don't know, nobody's been brave enough to take on Tom Bombadil. So I really have to see this. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that they have like subtitles or something. Or maybe I'll just watch it, you know, in Russian. Yeah, well, and this is, I mean, this is on YouTube. I mean, the two part, two parts of the production are free on YouTube. So I, I think I really am going to watch this. I mean, there's some other adaptations that I'm, I will watch at some point just dutifully because I feel like I should. But this one, I'm kind of excited to watch. Uh, you know, maybe I'll laugh at it. Maybe I'll love it. Stay tuned for our review of the Russian adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure we'll recognize Gollum's precious, precious. Or what it, we, we'll look up precious in Russian. But. And I, I should make one correction. So just to clarify in the article. So I said that the article said Lord of the Rings was banned. That's not exactly what it says. It says, um, uh, so Mark Hooker, who's the author of Tolkien Through Russian Eyes, a book about Tolkien in, the, in Russia during this period, said that the Lord of the Rings trilogy was essentially banned. So, you know, it was run out of circulation i assume that's what that means it wasn't i guess formally banned but so it was present but there was a lot of pressure against it so i I think the point still stands that um tolkien was not welcome in the soviet union and it was very very hard to find versions of it during that period so um once the soviet union collapsed i love that that lovers of tolkien took that opportunity to create an adaptation even though they were poor i mean the economy is in shambles the country is just i mean literally falling apart but um lovers of tolkien came together to create Gollum with lettuce on his head and uh but it, art it really survives. probably is a work of love yeah art yeah. survives that's the thing and the enduring power of stories and this story in particular never ceases to amaze me um and they're ahead of us they're way ahead in that legolas was played by a woman apparently in this adaptation yeah, so yeah, they yeah. they're gender swapping before we've been brave enough to do so so we got to get with the program here yeah apparently um male characters being played by f- female actresses still not cool in uh the tolkien fandom you know we did our poll about the blue wizards no female blue we're still wizards, bitter apparently. about that folks still bitter that still bugs me, still <laughs> still, bugs we're me. not gonna let that one go <laughs> <laughs> no we love interacting with people so if you tweet us retweet us we will respond or if you email us um yeah you can't yeah. stop us from responding actually if you tweet at me i'm gonna basically tweet at you uh that is every day after that <laughs> <laughs> i will not leave you alone <laughs> um well how do you say goodbye in Russian. Dostoevsky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that. man. I, I just realized I, we've been talking about this Russian adaptation, but I I didn't even think about hobbits speaking in a Russian accent. I mean, I, I want to see that. Can we do an English version of the Lord of the Rings where they're all speaking in Russian accents? I think that would be wonderful. Hello. I am Frodo. <laughs> Gandalf, Give me your you mushrooms. Are, you are very late. <laughs> <laughs> a wizard is never late, Frodo Beggins, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Where is your vodka? Vod- All right, now we're just being offensive. <laughs> vodka. <laughs> That's uh, all I got. 
No one listens to this podcast anyway. We're safe. I did my best. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. All right, Jen.